Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Purpose Tune Podcast. The goal of my show is to create valuable content to broaden your knowledge, inspire you, and get you in the right mindset so that you can apply it in your own life to drive impact, generate meaning, and achieve your purpose. On this episode, my guest is Dr. Sujin Pate. Sujin is a professor, a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, and a writer dedicated to centering the lives and experiences of historically marginalized groups. As a professor, she teaches courses on U.S. history and culture through the lens of race, class, gender, and sexuality in the Twin Cities area. As co-owner and partner of Strategic Diversity Initiatives, Sujin helps companies and organizations embed racial equity into their systems and processes. Sujin is the author of From Orphan to Adoptee, U.S. Empire and Genealogies of Korean Adoption, and co-host of the Anti-Racist Parenting Podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Glad the tech is all working. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's always funny with with tech. So, you know, it's just um, how the world works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um so um so could you please describe yourself to my listeners sure um so my name is sujin pate i am a professor of race and ethnic studies here in the twin cities i am also um, a co-owner and partner of strategic diversity initiatives which is a uh, dei consulting firm that works to help companies and organizations embed equity into all that they do. And I am also a writer. Wow, that's incredible. What an amazing background. <laughs> Thank um, you. It's, uh, writing's always been um, an instrumental journey for me. I, I, I love writing in college. I would, if I had a, an option between taking an exam or writing a you know, a 50 page paper. <laughs> I think I would yes. rather do writing instead. It's just me uh... too, Kong. <laughs> me too. Yeah. And in, in, in my classes, there are no exams, no quizzes or exams in any of my classes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I need to enroll in your classes. <laughs> yes. I'd love to have you. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so, how did you get involved? Uh, diversity inclusion work yeah so you know to be completely like honest um it's it was my plan b (laughs) um so plan a uh you know didn't work out um as much as 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 i hoped which was to to be working as a professor full-time um just given the 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 job market which never recovered from the global financial crisis that happened in 2018 uh, 2008. Um, yeah, our, the, the academy ha- has not recovered from that. And there are just less and less tenure track positions, less and less permanent full-time positions, um, and a lot more adjunct um, temporary positions. So that's, yeah, so, so I'm still able to, to teach and, and be a professor and do what I love. Um, but, you know, given that I, I'm not able to do it full time, um, I, I had to find some other work, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. to, to pay the bills. And, right. and that other work is the D- diversity, equity, inclusion um, 
consultation that that I've been doing, and it I found that it's like perfectly aligns really with with what I was hoping to do as as a professor because I was doing DEI work um, in in all of the institutions that I worked at, so helping mm-hmm. with recruiting and retention and and all that stuff. So um, yeah, so it, it was just kind of a, a natural fit. Um, as I was trying to come up with, you know, okay, given the the tools, the skills, the passion that I have, how can I, how can I, you know, find or forge a different path that mm-hmm. can utilize all those things and still like make money and get benefits <laughs> and all that stuff. <laughs> all, so, all the basics. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. That is so important. So I, I love that you're sharing this because I read a quote somewhere, maybe um, from a book um, on personal development, but it was about how as average beings, we tend to freeze up and we get anxious and nervous when we don't know the, we don't know what the, the future holds for us. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, in that statement said that we have to take more actions in order to create our future. The future isn't given to us. We have to create that. It's mm-hmm. in the journey that makes our our work alive. Yeah. And that ties in into the theme of my show, which is about purpose. And I see that you were able to leverage your 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 past interests and passion and really create a future mm-hmm. that is now helping you apply your skills and your experiences um and really working in area that you enjoy doing is that correct yeah yeah and you know i i guess i i, I want to just kind of add on to kind of what you were saying before as you were citing you know the the, the book um, that you read. And, you know, the, the, the thing that came up for me was this phrase. Um, I, I, I can't, I, I think it's just like a, a principle of, of Buddhism. And um, I say, so not to say that I'm Buddhist, um, I, I don't actually tie to any kind of religious, um, uh, like any, yeah, any kind of religion. Um, but if I had to put myself into a category, I would say that I am, in terms of my philosophy and approach to spirituality, it is um, probably closer to Buddhism. But one of the principles mm-hmm. of Buddhism is like that consciousness precedes form. So mm-hmm. I go, I'll say that again, consciousness precedes form. So what does that mean? Well, for me, it, it means that like, if you have a, <clears throat> a, a good sense of kind of like your purpose, you know, what your purpose is, what your values are, what, what drives you. And, 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 and the answers to those questions are, are typically quite abstract, right? It's, it's about mm-hmm. values um, and beliefs and, and all that stuff. And so once you have a good sense of that, so that's your consciousness, then, then, then the, the action steps um, just kind of flow naturally. Um, and, and, and the universe like starts opening doors, you know, mm-hmm. to, to help order those steps. 
And that's certainly been my experience is when I try to tackle a problem by being like, okay, what is it that I need to, what is it that I need to do? Like what next steps, what action steps do I need to come up with to like resolve this problem? Actually that I never solve problems that way. Like I end up like hitting um, like roadblocks and like hitting my head, like up against a brick wall. But Mm -hmm. if I, if I, if I go, if I stop, thinking about the action and think more about, okay, what are my values? Like, why is this an issue? Like, you know, what are the feelings that are coming up for me? And then, and then thinking through like, like, where is that coming from? Is it insecurity? Is it, you know, like trauma, pain is, you know, from the past? Is it, you know, because I, because this reminds me of a past event that happened. And, Mm. and so, so if I take a moment to actually reflect on like, like, like what, what makes this particular issue an issue for me? Um, and, and, and try to suss out like, like what's the root cause of this issue? Then, then I, and, and then to gain, gain clarity around, okay, what, what are my values? What are my beliefs about this? Um, and then from there, aligning you know coming up with action steps that align with my values and my and my beliefs then I feel like I'm I I'm then I'm able to solve those problems Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah so what I'm hearing from you is that you have to start with your character yes your values (laughs) and then it has to start from the inside out. Yes, and exactly. Once you're able to evaluate what those values are, you can then take action steps that aligns with those values to create the kind of life that you want. Exactly. Exactly. Because I think oftentimes if we don't do that reflection and so and if we don't if we're not constantly reflecting like on the choices that we're making and everything, it's so easy for us to go on autopilot because our society is telling us all the time what we should be doing. And if we, right. And if we don't stop and take a moment and be, and question that, then Mm -hmm. we end up doing what everybody else wants us to do, (laughs) which, you know, like oftentimes other people don't have the best of intentions, like for us in mind, when they're, (laughs) when they're telling us like, this is my expectation of you. This is what you should be doing. This is what I want you to do. And so so yeah, I, I just I, I think that is like if if listeners don't get anything else from what I say, like I hope this is I hope this is the one thing that they do take away from this is to constantly question why you're doing what you're doing and asking yourself, is this because this is what I want to do and it's in alignment with my character, my values, my my beliefs, or is what I'm doing because <laughs> this is an expectation an external expectation? You know, that I'm just, I'm just, you know, going on autopilot and doing because that's what we've been taught. We've been socialized to be good workers, to be good students, to be good managers, to be good supervisors, to be good whatever, you know, and, and what, what, what that whatever is, is always tied to other people's expectations around that particular role. And to add on to that as well, sometimes it's not within our best interests because it's really 
they that they want us to act or behave a certain way to fulfill their expectations of us yes so and and typically those expectations are around money right Right. <laughs> around like productivity so that you can make the most money for us as possible. And I, I'm, I, I know plenty of people where money is not the driving motivating factor in their life. Like that isn't their right. purpose to, to make a bunch of money. Yes, there are certainly people where, where that is their purpose, right? But for those of us where that's not our purpose, then what are we doing? Why are we running ourselves ragged for a company that really doesn't care about, about our, our, you know, our um, mental health, our physical health, our emotional health, our work-life balance? And right. so, so that's why it's, it's so important for you to get clear because if you don't get clear about what you want to do, there are plenty of other people who are clear about what they want you to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It takes courage to be yourself. It does. And but, not only that, too, what you're saying about purpose, companies that have a purpose outperform those that do not. Yes. And even if money isn't, even if money is an organization's goal, they need to have a purpose that's greater than money. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they will not survive yeah. and their competitors will beat them at it, yeah. which is why this show is about that as well. It's about how do we get people to engage in their reflection and mm-hmm. their their values and passion and bring that you know do the internal hard work and then once you have that identified how do you bring that out and so it all comes down to is purpose why do we exist we don't i i, I personally don't think we exist because of money we exist because there's something bigger than money something that yes. fulfills us even people who make a lot of money are unfulfilled and dissatisfied with their life and that is i think one of the most is the ultimate failure of life is when you think you've achieved uh wealth only to find that you know you're unhappy and that's a very uh uh dark place to be and and that's why identifying your purpose is so important kong because what purpose does is like what you said, it connects us to something greater than ourselves. And especially mm-hmm. in this time of me, 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 I, 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 like, you know, our, our country is, is rooted in white supremacy. And one of the, you know, characteristics of white supremacy is individualism. This idea mm-hmm. that it's just about me and nobody else, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, my goodness, how much greater would our world be if we actually had a more, more um, or an orientation, not towards individualism, but collectivism to think mm-hmm. about like we are all in this together, that we are all interrelated. You know what? What like if, if you hurt, I hurt. If you do well, I do well. And, and because we are all like part of this human race, you know, right. on, living on this planet. And so, so that, that, that is, that is another reason why I I encourage people and, and I'm so glad that you have this podcast where you're encouraging your listeners to figure out what their purpose is, because oftentimes 
that purpose is, is, is connected and linked to something greater beyond yourself, beyond your, your individual self, behind your, your inner circle, right? It's, it's much more expansive and it's, 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 and it, um, breeds, uh, a more kind of collective understanding of our world and our society. And the more we can get people to think like that, to, to think as, as like, we are all one, you know, we are all this one collective, um, the, the better our world will, our world will be. I like, can you like, if we had that, can you imagine how the pandemic would be totally different? Right? Mm. I mean, right, just, just that alone, like if we had adopted a more collective response instead of an individual response, you know, like these are my personal rights. I get to decide if I want to wear a mask or not. You can't tell me what to do. Like, <laughs> like that, that whole idea of individualism just like leads to this, this like unbelievable um, kind of like all like altered reality state where are you kidding me (laughs) you think that me like me saying that you should wear a mask is infringing on your personal freedoms are you kidding me like it's about keeping everybody safe and it it shows how selfish people are too it's not just about individualism versus collectivism but the types of values people hold when people don't protect the loved ones and they just go out and about without wearing a mask, I think it's the most irresponsible thing you could ever do uh, to hurt, you know, uh, you know, one's community, uh, even one's loved ones. And, you know, the ultimate uh, outcome is that people die because yes. of the irresponsible you know, yes. behaviors that selfish, individualistic um, um, persons um, hold and it's so sad just having to see all that's going on and I'm heartbroken really and really mind-blowing that it has become a political uh, uh, thing whether you know what I you know what I choose to you know yeah. if I choose to wear a mask is up to me and it's my right it's it's um it's very very selfish I think yeah, and, and, and we see there's plenty of other countries that have a more collective approach, right? And they're, I mean, like, it's night and day. Like, their numbers compared to our numbers, night and day. Mm-hmm. So, and like, and we're just like following those... science, right? It's just right. like, <laughs> we're just following the science. It's not an infringement on your personal rights. It's well, best def- practice in terms of how to keep people healthy, well, and the, the the scary thing is that people don't believe in science, and they also believe yeah. that this is a a, um, a, a rights hoax. issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you put the two together, it's it's very deadly, and, yeah. and you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, literally, it is literally doubt deadly. Yes, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, and I'm I'm not in, I'm not here to discuss uh, solutions. As I know, there are tons of solutions that we could do, such as wearing a mask, social distance, and all that stuff. But I'm more interested in how can we, as a as a society, or how can we move our communities forward in times of change and uncertainty when there's so much going on um, as it relates to the pandemic, um, and then having to 
think about the whole movement of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any insight on that since you, you come from a DNI space? Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's about listening um, and, and like listening for real, because it's not like these issues are new. Right. I mean, like communities of color have been telling us and certainly black people have been telling us for centuries, you know, what the the what's wrong with our country in terms of the, the unequal ways in which um, people are treated. And mm-hmm. so so I so I think I think what we really need to do is we need to be listening to black people right now. And what are black people telling us? Well, they're telling us that we need to examine and root out white supremacy like in our lives as well mm-hmm. as anti-black racism in our lives. And mm-hmm. so that is, you know, I I'm listening and I'm actually rolling all of that stuff into the trainings into the presentations and speaking engagements that I have. Um, like, yeah, like every opportunity I, I, I have to like, to, to lead by example, you know? So I'm, I say like, I'm listening to these people. <laughs> I'm listening to the black community and this is what they want. So like, this is what we're going to be talking about, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and, and so, so yeah, I, I think, I, I think we need to, to, to really listen. And what does it mean to really listen? There's action, right? You do something different. You make, you change your behavior um, based on the new information that you're getting. That is what true listening is. Listening, like, for, because, and, and the reason why that is my definition of listening is because I have heard so many people, like, you know, in this work, so many employees like their biggest complaint, right, is that leadership isn't listening to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and so, so like, you know, how does, an, how does an employee know that they're being heard? Well, they know that they're being heard because there are different decisions being made. There are different actions being made. So there, there is an action component to listening. If you don't change your behavior, if you don't change the way you make decisions based on the new information presented to you, then you're not listening. Right. <laughs> you're not listening. Um, you're hearing the words out of my mouth, but you're not listening. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and so, so that's, that's what this moment is calling for. That this, it's what this moment, what many moments have been calling for, but I really hope that this time people are actually listening because we are in a prime opportunity for massive, like systemic change in our country uh, because for the first time in our nation, we are, <laughs> we are um, experiencing the largest social movement in our nation with this current movement for Black Lives. Right. Like the polls are showing that, you know, anywhere from 16 to 26 million people have hit the streets protesting this summer. And like the majority of them are white people. And the majority of those white people, this is their first time getting involved. And so like so so given that we have like candid audience, right, <laughs> of, of, of newcomers who are saying, yes, this is an issue. We have a race issue, a racism issue in our country. Um, so so we're, we're in a prime 
like time to, to, to make such substantive, like real changes because we've mobilized, um, you know, this moment has mobilized people that have never been mobilized before. And I would hate for us 10 years later, 50 years later, you know, future generations looking back on this moment and being like, gosh, they had this incredible opportunity for change and they blew it because they weren't listening. Right. Because, because, you know, because they, 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 um, you know, got triggered, you know, for, for, but it was momentary. And then they just went back, you know, fall came, winter came, the cold weather came, businesses opened up. And now they have like, you know, more time to be distracted by other things. And they just went back and went to business as usual. Dear God, like I do not, I hope that that doesn't happen. And I'm doing everything that I can in my spheres of influence to make sure that that does not happen. There was a quote that I read. I, I think it was on Facebook. It says that don't put white feelings over black lives. And I thought that that was a powerful statement yes. because there's, for the first time, like you're saying, there's a lot of white folks that are engaging in topics of race relations um, and they quite frankly don't know where to start. And sometimes they get defensive because they get easily triggered by it. Whereas people of color and black people have faced racism all their lives. And it's such an unfair situation to be placed where my feelings are hurt, but, you know, I'm seeing someone, you know, who's black and just got killed. And yeah. that, you know, is devastating, but I'm also hurt. I mean, it's not about you, right? It's not about yes. us. It's about creating a community where everyone can be treated fairly and equally. Yes. And we have not just people who are, who holds racist attitudes towards, um, you know, black people and people of color, but the systems and process that Absolutely. are in place are designed yep. to put people of color and black people down and yep. there has to be change which is the notion of institutionalized racism there has to be change uh, within institutions we have to hold institutions accountable yep. for the mistreatment um, of of people who are not white and i'm happy that there are organizations that are taking a proactive approach to engaging in this discussion and hiring more diversity uh, uh, chief of diversity officers and creating um, diversity equity inclusion uh, committees to help them lead the way on diversity and inclusion. Um, I, I think that the, there has to be an aspect of accountability. And mm -hmm. I am afraid, like you're saying, that once everything is back to normal, that people just forget about these issues and we can't we need to ensure that organizations are hold accountable for for what they say they're going to do and it's not just i'm in it because it's for profit yes yep and and i mean you know kong when you first started talking about you know about the feelings right well i'm hurt my feelings are hurt i feel guilty i feel shame or whatever that that too is a characteristic of white supremacy where um so 
you know, individualism being at play, you know, it, it becomes about me, (laughs) you know, Um, and as well as the right to comfort. That Mm -hmm. is a huge characteristic of white supremacy, the Mm -hmm. right to comfort. And, um, and, 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 you know, people of color, we have been socialized because we live in a white supremacist world country, we have been socialized to think about, you know, to, to help manage the feelings of white people so that they stay comfortable. And we need to stop doing that, you know, and white people also need to stop doing that for other white people <laughs> and, and also for, for themselves. And so, so if, again, I go back to, if we listen to what black communities are telling us that they need right now, which is to examine white supremacy and anti-black racism in our own lives, in our workplaces. Mm-hmm. Then, I mean, and that is work that is ongoing and forever. If we, if we actually listen to them, then there, w- there is no fear that people are just going to go back to business as usual, you know, after a few months or whatever, because right. that work, that, that kind of work requires daily action and reflection. Um, and, and when you do that work, you make different decisions. Like, you know, what, when you start under, you know, when you start understanding the ways in which that you like reproduce white supremacy in your workplaces, in your relationships with others, in your policies, in your procedures, and, and you're committed to like, we don't want to reproduce white supremacy. We don't want to exacerbate racial disparities in our workplace. We want to shrink them. Like if mm-hmm. you are truly committed, then you will make different decisions based on that reflection. Right. And we have to be uncomfortable creating change, the kind of change that we want to see because without yeah, we can't privilege comfort. Like, right. yeah, like who cares about comfort right now? It's not about staying comfortable or being or being afraid of being uncomfortable. It, it, it doesn't matter. Like this is the the work and, and your feelings of discomfort, they will immediately be like set aside. Like once you start the process of action, because you're going to be too busy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to be too, too busy to be feeling discomfort because you're doing the work. Right. And, and part of what you're saying too, is not our job to fix racism. Our job isn't like people of color's job to fix racism it is, I believe, white folks, they're responsible, the responsibility to ensure that these systems of oppression and racist uh, um, processes um, are, are dismantled, eliminated, so yeah. that everyone can thrive and in, in an environment that is equal and just. And I also think, too, that in order for people to work together, there has to be some human connection and commonalities as a good place to start. Would you agree to that? Mm-hmm. And when we have common commonalities or common interests that bonds who we are, we're able to take action with one another. We're able to collaborate, communicate with each other, uh, in ways that are genuine and sincere in order to dismantle the, uh, the systems um, and process and people that are, in, you know, in place to keep uh, people of color um, 
uh, down, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Yeah. And so I really admire your work in, in the space of diversity and inclusion. Um, what, how would you get through difficult times when you know this work is not always easy? Well, so, you know, I've, because I've been doing this for uh, about 20 years now, I've learned a lot on the way. So, and, and taking those learnings from past mistakes and has helped me to, to be more discerning about who I work with, Mm -hmm. what work I do take on, um, what client, what clients I work with. Um, because uh, frankly, I'm, I'm sick and tired of, of working with people who talk a good game, like they say all the right things, but then when it comes to actually moving on something, moving on an action. So here's a finding, you know, from, from Mm -hmm. the culture, you know, from the climate assessment that, that we did for you, for your organization. So this is a finding. And based on that finding, this is the recommendation based on my expertise, based on like best practices in this industry. And then to be met with, yeah, no, that's not what we want. (laughs) Or, you know, because we've never done it before, or we're not ready for that, or, you know, all all kinds of all kinds of excuses Excuses. why, why that can't be done. And and so, so yeah, and I like I I'm I'm tired of working with those kinds of clients, mm-hmm. um, and and so so I I feel like and I'm not perfect I'm not perfect in this and I'm not um, and I'm not trying to strive for perfection because perfection is also another characteristic of white supremacy, but mm-hmm. what what but what I and and so what what I was gonna say was like I'm not perfect in terms of being able to discern. <laughs> Um, you know, who those clients are, uh, but I am getting better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and because I'm like you, this, this work is hard already in and of itself. And mm-hmm. to, to, to be working with people who actually aren't genuine about this work, like, oh my gosh, it makes it even more like, like 10 times more exhausting. Right. Um, well, and, the good thing is, is that you get to choose your own clients. So yes. You can pick and choose. Yes. And like any business you run, right, you would prefer to work with clients that you enjoy working with. Mm-hmm. That doesn't create stress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. And can you share more about how per- perfection is a trait of white supremacy? Oh, yeah. So this, this idea that um, everything has to be perfect this exp- because the the underlying uh uh belief <laughs> like of of the this expectation of perfection is that white people are perfect mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're not i mean it's it, it, mm-hmm. you know because white people are human beings just like the rest of us they aren't any more special than the rest of us Nice. Um, and, 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 and so this, so, so this idea that, 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 that we need to, um, ac- achieve this ideal of perfection, which is really an ideal of white perfection. It's not good for white people and it's not good for people of color. 
mm-hmm. because perfection is it's it's not possible to attain like no one is perfect no one is so you're mm-hmm. already setting us up for failure by having that expectation right and and so so again how is it rooted in white supremacy is because because the ideal of perfection is rooted in whiteness that whiteness is the ideal that white culture mm. is the ideal you know interesting um, yeah are there articles or data that supports this notion oh well, yeah I, yes there's all there's um so timo kuhn and kenneth jones they created this uh document called the characteristics of white supremacy mm. um <laughs> so i can yeah i, I can definitely sh- share that out yeah yeah, yeah. I, and, I, and, 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 and it's not a whole list, right? I mean, there's so many. There, there's, there's, there's so much, but, but uh, so many characteristics. But mm-hmm. essentially, the, the defining characteristic of anything that is considered a white supremacist characteristic is any characteristic that upholds, that centers, that privileges and prioritizes white people, white culture, white ideology, white ways of thinking, like that, that then is a characteristic of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot to take in. <laughs> but about... but here, but the, the reason why it's a lot to take in is because mm-hmm. no one talks about it. Right. That is a problem, even though white supremacy. So um, Charles Mills, in his um, uh, book, The Racial Contract, he mm-hmm. said that white supremacy was the primary mode and method of global European domination. Okay, so it has been around for centuries, mm-hmm. but no one really knows what white supremacy is because our society has relegated, our mainstream, you know, uh, like media and everything, has relegated to this rogue faction of white people, the KKK and neo-Nazis. That is not white supremacy. That's not the definition of white supremacy. It is, it is one, one, uh, one byproduct and manifestation of white supremacy, but that mm-hmm. is not the definition of white supremacy. Um, and, and instead, like, so based on the definition of white supremacy, which I just shared, there are a whole list of socially acceptable practices in our society that are white supremacist. But because mainstream society has 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 um, has made white supremacy like a bad word, <laughs> you know, and and only um, and and only related to the KKK and neo Nazis, like so many people, when they hear white supremacy, that's immediately what they think of is the KKK, and they're like, I'm not that, so I don't have anything to do with white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That is that is exactly what we, mainstream like media wants you to do. They don't mm-hmm. want you to think that you're implicated in white supremacy, because if we were like if, if we knew that, then that could possibly inspire us to make changes in our lives. Right. Mm-hmm. To not uphold white supremacy. So that is the work, Kong, that that's what I'm saying is like, you know, it has been around for centuries. Everybody knows what capitalism is. Everybody knows what democracy is or socialism is like they're familiar with that. But they are not familiar with white supremacy, which is older than those things. Mm. 
And I think part of it has to do with um, our educational system, how it's set up. For example, um, I went to the University of Minnesota, um, and, uh, and I think you, you have some experiences there too, right? Yep. Uh, you did your PhD a, there? Yeah, yep, I'm an alumna. Uh-huh. And in one of the discussions I had with a couple of the professors there who taught in ethnic studies is that they're all constantly fighting for funding um, because, um, you know, there's just not enough money that goes into um, teaching um, people about these kinds of things. Um, and that's a perfect example of, of white supremacy. Um, people who who come from that type of background and believe in those types of um, attitudes and beliefs don't want to teach these things to the greater um, uh, population because they're afraid that they'll find out. Um, look what Trump yeah. is doing with um, signing an executive order, I believe, uh, last week to uh, eliminate diversity inclusion training yes. because he's mm-hmm. afraid that these trainings will just divide us more. But really, his intention is it to will... ensure that white people, you know, that white supremacy continues to be yes. this uh, ideal. Yes. Um, perfection that uh, people should look up to and to teach these things on diversity and inclusion is to really expose the o- ugliness that comes out of uh you know um our systems and and um and, and institutions that have been uh, in place for centuries yeah okay so two things i want to point out first is that there there are departments in academia that exist today that have been around for decades. It's called ethnic studies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that does teach these things. Right. And, you know, more, 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 you know, so, so, so what, you know, deans and, and, you know, need to do is actually like mandate ethnic studies as part of, you know, a requirement. Um, mm-hmm. And, and more, and more and more colleges are, are doing that. Like you can't, you can't graduate from a, a four year, like um, with a four year degree without having at least taken one course, mm-hmm. you know, about like racism, like in our society. Uh, so, so, so it, it, it is being done, but, um, but more, like you said, more absolutely needs to be done. Um, and the, the second thing I want to point out is, In all of my experience doing like teaching race and ethnic studies, talking about, you know, systems of oppression, you know, along the lines of race, sexuality, class, ability, religion, sex um, and uh, and and gender. uh, I've I've only had one person where where it where they like opted out. You know, mm-hmm. where they're like, nope, not going to be a part of this. Everybody else, it has opened their eyes and, ha- and has expanded their world in such a way that they want to seek out and connect with people who are different from them. Mm-hmm. So to say that anti, you know, anti-bias training and anti-racist training, like, you know, DEI, like training is divisive. It's an absolute lie. It's an absolute lie because what it does is it gets people to go outside of their comfort zone, to be more curious, and to reach out to people who are different from them. If that's not, if that's not like 
working towards unity and collectivism and, and bridging, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what is. Right. It's kind of like the example of you, you're in a, an abusive relationship and your spouse is telling you uh, he or she doesn't want to talk about the issues. In this yes, because it'll be divisive. Because it'll be divisive. Yes. And so <laughs> instead of instead of talking about these issues and communicating with each other to find common grounds, the issues are just there and it exists and nothing gets done. And so, you know, both parties just don't feel happy. Yeah, which goes back to the the white supremacist characteristic of of right to comfort. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. It's nonsense because it doesn't move us forward at all. Mm -hmm. It doesn't progress us as a nation. Um, You know, we're United States of America. Yeah. You know, not not full of of individualistic. you know, traits, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think. And so, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a lot to, um, a lot of work for sure in this arena. What are, what advice would you give to my listeners who um, are currently listening and wants to create change in this space? Yeah, well, so I, I would say look up, um, you can Google it, just characteristics of white supremacy um, and uh, again, it's Kenneth Jones and Tima Okun. It's T-E-M-A-A and then Okun, O-K-U-N. Get that handout. Read through it and, and reflect on how white supremacy shows up in your life and in your workplace. And, and as you're working through that, you know, make, make changes in your spheres of influence. Um, and pick up the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, because that is really, and, and I, I, that, that's really what we need um, to, to change this world is like for real <laughs> um, and not just lip service is uh, to, to, we need more people to, to be willing to commit to being an anti-racist so that we can usher in an anti-racist world. There's also a book called White Fragility as well, right? Yeah, yep, yeah. So but, for white, so for white folks, yes, go ahead and um, pick that up <laughs> too. But but how to be an anti-racist is, I I think, um, like really key because it it provides it it's it, yeah it provides so many like steps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just really clear on like you know how to become an anti-racist, what that looks like, how to think like one, what what an anti-racist like um, company (laughs) would look like, what an anti-racist world would look like, because so much of this is unknown, right? Because anti-racism is on the margins of our society. Races, we all know what racism looks like. We're, Mm -hmm. we, not all of us know what anti-racism looks like. And so Mm -hmm. that's why that book is really great because it helps you to understand what it looks like and and yeah so so and, that we that we can move towards that and i'm sure the book probably has solutions how you could go about yes um tackling these these yep. uh, topics head on yes that's great yeah i believe education is definitely one of the most powerful tools that one can have in order to uh, achieve the kind of outcomes that they want to achieve what 
would you say are your top habits that helps you through this work? Oh, yeah. So um, I think the, for me, the first thing is making time and space for like self-care. So, yep. So I, I'm, I'm a, I fancy myself a self-care guru. <laughs> like I give workshops on it. I, I, it's, it's very important to me. So it's something that I'm constantly practicing and refining for myself. It's something that I reflect on daily. Like mm-hmm. how am I taking care of myself? And so, um, so what, what I do is, you know, I, I, I set, just like I set meetings with other people, I set a meeting for myself mm-hmm. um, with myself and 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 that's my self care time and sometimes i can give like an hour to to myself or sometimes it's like increments of 10 minutes throughout the day mm-hmm. um but but yeah self care is really important um the second uh another habit that that's really good for me is um and this is something that you mentioned early on during our conversation is about um holding myself accountable you are absolutely right change nothing nothing can happen like what as it relates to change without accountability Um, we can have the best of intentions we can have the greatest plan and strategy in place but if we don't hold ourselves accountable to like like once we implement things and you know and and is it is it doing what we intended if the answer is no and you don't make a change, <laughs> you're not holding yourself as accountable, right? Right. Um, there's, and, uh, yeah. There's no sus- sustainability there as well. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 so like, but accountability has to start with ourselves. Like, if you can't mm-hmm. hold your own self accountable, how in the world are you gonna, you know, try to hold another person or <laughs> an organization or, you know a presidency, <laughs> you know, Congress accountable. Um, so, mm-hmm. so, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's something that, that I, um, that I'm constantly reflecting on as well and make a habit and a practice is, okay, this is what I was intending, you know, for, in terms of the outcome, like by, by doing this is, are the results matching up? And if they're not, then I have to iterate, you know, just like, just like what uh, computer scientists and software developers do all the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> they're, they're, they're agile. They're, they're iterating all the time based on new information, new feedback that comes and that we need to adopt that kind of mentality, not only in our personal lives, um, but also in our work lives. Right. Yeah. So I have like an accountability partner, you know, so I and I have I have um, certain people to to help hold me accountable for different things. Um, And and I and then I also, you know, have my own kind of ritual and practice for myself to hold myself accountable. Yeah, definitely. The accountability uh, partner is definitely uh, a great way to ensure that. you will follow through and it also ties into your credibility too right like you have yeah. to do the hard work first internally yes in order to then demonstrate that 
inside out so people trust you and that they see you as someone who's credible because you're holding yourself accountable so Mm -hmm. and then you're placing accountability on them so that that way it you know it you know it gives them the opportunity to uh to say well if this person is modeling this uh behavior then we must also um you know trust this person um, and really model that behavior ourselves yeah. in order to create the kind of change that we want to see. Here, here's the thing, Kong. For me, as a professor, as a DEI like consultant and professional, I will never ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Mm-hmm. So that's how I keep also hold myself accountable. If I'm asking certain institutions to do a certain thing, like that, that's because I've asked that of myself. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So 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 th- that is that is that is a part of integrity for for me, you know? Right. That that is a part of 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 holding myself accountable and and keeping myself aligned to my values. Um because if again, if I like you said, if I can't do that for myself first, then like who are you? Like you don't have the credibility to like ask others to be doing that. Um, so, so that's always my check is like, if I'm asking my students or my clients to do this work and I'm not doing it, then I can't ask them. Mm -hmm. So, so because I want to ask them, I'm going to do the work. Right. Exactly. How do you live a purposeful life? I think by slowing down. You have to be intentional about slowing down. Mm-hmm. And I mean like slowing down your thoughts. You can be, you can be, you know, running, you can be like physically active. That that that's not what I mean by slowing down. I mean like, you know, stopping and, and taking time to think, is what I'm doing right now, is this in al- <laughs> in alignment with my commitments mm-hmm. <laughs> that I've made to myself? Right. You know? Um, so, so I, 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 gosh, I, I don't know how many times a day I ask myself that question, but, mm-hmm. but to constantly ask yourself and to check in with yourself and, and, and do, and yeah, and, and to, to be more conscious and deliberate about the thoughts that you're thinking and about the actions that you are doing mm-hmm. that, yeah, that's, that's the key. Wow, that's incredible. Thank you for the advice. Um, what, how, where do people find you? Hmm. Yeah, so uh, you can find me at strategicdi.com. So that's um, our, our company website, Strategic Diversity Initiatives, is strategicdi.com. Um, you can also find me at antiracistparentingpodcast.com. So this is a podcast that I co-host with my partner, Hannah Carney. Um, We're trying to, we are trying to raise anti-racist children and anti-racist adults (laughs) so that, (laughs) so that, so that we can create and usher in this anti-racist world. Um, You can also, (laughs) you can also find me at ode2george.com. So this is an anthology project that my uh, friend and I, Shay Cage, are co-editing. So 
for your listeners out there, please submit to ode2george.com. Um, and two is spelled out. So T-O. Um, uh, yeah, please submit because we're collecting essays and poems and visual art that reflects on the George Floyd Memorial site that was created at 35th and, um, and uh, Chicago Avenue. And then you can also find me on, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. My, my handle is just all one word, Sujin Pate, my name. Great. That's, that's great that you're so involved and active. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, folks, you heard it. Sujin is an amazing, accomplished, uh, you know, writer and professor and uh, consultant in the space of, um, you know, diversity and inclusion and uh, achieving racial equality uh, for for everyone. Uh, definitely feel free to check out her her uh, resources and reference where you found uh, where she w- reference where you found her, uh, which is through the Purpose Tune podcast, my podcast. Um, and thank you for listening. Uh, Sujen, thank you so much for uh, your time. And I truly appreciate the incredible, valuable insight that you're willing to share with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Kong. Really appreciate it. Okay, (laughs) take good care. You too. Bye-bye.